This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, Atame on Desire. Helen, kick us off. So Atame is a film about transgression and abnormality. All films, and in particular Almodovar's films that he makes through his production company El Deseo, Desire, are about and are fueled by desire. There would be no human subjectivity without desire. There would be no human desire without our second birth, our birth into language, which marks us forever with, and which anchors us into its generative nothingness. Lack is therefore tied to desire. Lack is universal and so is desire. Desire, particularly when it is related to sex or drive, is always by necessity beyond reason, beyond order, beyond facile categorization. It is antagonism as such. A political that doesn't take into consideration lack and that doesn't understand the contours and functioning of human desire isn't really political at all. The market system operates on the promise that the intrinsic gap of lack can be closed by the purchasing of a commodity or the conquering of a new terrain. The closure of the gap offered by a new pair of trainers, for example, by the wisdom embodied by only, only by a newly singled out identity group will return us to a kind of utopian oblivion, a oneness that we experience, quote unquote, at a time before we were born. But this tantalizing return is a logical impossibility as long as we are alive. The womb in which we, would, we dwelled before we were cast into this chaotic world was a tomb. And it is only when we die and disintegrate and our atoms return to the earth that we can ever live out this oneness again. To be human is not to be at one with the universe that we are. To peddle the promise of oneness is to operate within the capitalist mode. This is not to say that we can't purchase a product that will make our lives easier on a material level. Or that greater wealth distribution or better treatment of people who are and have been oppressed in the past is not the right thing to do. When we are talking about the closure of lack, we are talking about the phenomenon of transcendence, a religious phenomenon that operates at the level of our ruptured subjectivity, the unconscious. To heed the call of the transcendent is to be held hostage from the ordinary work of the political, of making the world we live in the best place possible for as many people who live here as we can in favour of something much more toxic. Capitalism, unfortunately, operates at this religious level. It is a systematized ideology of promise, a guarantee of a heaven just over the horizon on earth. It operates within the same ideological framework as Orientalism and racist particularism, setting up an illusory guarantee that someone or something can return us to the experience of oneness whilst we are alive, whilst we are still speaking abject, contradictory beings. Whether this be the wisdom of little children or the purchasing of a powerful car or the guttural tones of world music, so-called, or the frontier of Mars and the moon, the guarantee of a return to oneness is an illusion. Fascism emerges when this guarantee, formalized and rendered into an existential pervasive quote-unquote truth through the imprisoning and unfreedom of the market system, inevitably fails us, and it is sustained by the ongoing failure. When we are still caught up in the illusory promise that a utopia can exist on Earth, our spiritual resentment reassures us that we are only temporarily and contingently frustrated from this oneness by another category of person. We can only conquer this illusion by embracing the universal truth that obliterates this very promise of oneness, that we are all lacking, that no one or no, nothing can rescue us from this truth, that we are united by our lack, and that in Hegel's word, substance is subject. We live in a chaotic universe where contradiction and contingency will always inevitably bite. The only necessity is contingency itself. It is the chaos of the universe into which we are born, the chaos of language that marks us with lack at the, shape, at the level of subjectivity and that shapes our messy, chaotic desire. The universal of lack is that which is political. Politics is tarrying with this truth, a promise that denies this truth is not political at all. In recent years, an ideology has been established that there is an emancipatory promise in the quote-unquote forms of desiring 
of a given particular identity group or groups. This promise appears political, but this is precisely the reverse. It is the replacement of politics with the commoditization of subjectivity and of desire. The white nationalism of Hitler is the form of identity politics that we most recognize as fascism, but the promise of wholeness at the level of fantasy, desire, and subjectivity, because it is a logical fallacy that can only be sustained by the scapegoating of contingent disciplinable groups or forms of behavior, operates in the same mode. It is excused by the veneer of civilized liberal ideology of the contemporary market system. It reverses the unbarred nature of the Jew for Hitler towards the unbarred nature of a subject who can guarantee us political emancipatory emancipation beyond antagonism. Today, the heirs of Hegel, Marx, Freud, and Lacan have misunderstood the foundational premises of their writings and weaponized an empty and aesthetic reading of them to put forward easily misconstrued terms like the personal is political. The personal is only political insofar as every human person is marked by lack. When we declare that an individual or particularist group holds out a political promise or a special set of lessons that can assuage us of the anxieties caused by the very system whose ideology this idea sustains, we are operating within the capitalist and fascistic logic systems. Perhaps only the set of no set can do this, but that's another story. Fascism is to capitalism as rivers are to rain. The personal is political, opens up the political to the market realm. The way contemporary discussions within the liberal left as they relate to motherhood, for example, a prime example of the uncategorizable and messy antagonism of human existence, suggests a move to capture the impossible there within the market system too. A politics of promise is a politics of capital. The universal antagonism of the political is ironed out and replaced with woke product. Rather than fixing our eyes on the contradictions and illusions of the market system that generate the very scapegoating oppression and enemy making that the best of politics should assuage, Market ideology tells us that we can purchase a handmade candle in the shape of a vagina from a lady candle maker, or that we can read books for a year only written by brackets, upper middle class ladies. The depoliticization of desire operates in the same way. We erect borders around protectist identities whose foundational modes of desire are said to operate in ways that no others do. These identity groups become recognized as special, undivided, unique subjects who, instead of indeed having been oppressed because of the toxic resentment, resentiment, and need for scapegoats that the capitalistic ideology of promise engenders, offer a wisdom and a quote-unquote political promise through their distinctive mode of desire. But this is precisely desirist in the same way as treating women like angels as sexist and as Quaron's treatment of Cleo as racist. Like a talismanic bare-breasted lady carved from the wood of the crest of an old-fashioned imperial ship as it conquers territories new, the groups are rendered nothing more than lucky charms, fetish objects that shield our gaze from the contradictions of the market system. A promise is projected onto them that they will annihilate antagonism. They become the apolitical, non-revolutionary subject. To fetishize the other is to sustain a system that generates the worst in us. To aim at a political oneness is to annihilate the political as such. Political politi politics is antagonism, and so is desire. When identity practitioners single out undivided groups in the name of quote-unquote critical theory, they trample on the grave of the likes of Freud, Lacan, Marx, and Hegel that they claim so intensely to, to, to admire. There, the, there is no human desiring subject beyond antagonism, beyond the abject, beyond the chaotic. We are all queer. That which is political within the LGBTQ plus spectrum is not the existence of the spectrum, spectrum, but its failure, the fact that it must always expand. The political resides in the understanding that desire operates on a logic of uncontainability. Our desire, our sexual fantasies, our attempts at ordering an impossibility. None of it is quote unquote natural. All of it is abnormal, just like it is for the surreal, pathetic, and comedic characters of Atomy. 
Films operate on the universal recognition by the audience of the lacking desire of the characters on screen. These characters touch us because they lack and because we are lacking too. In them, we recognize the painful antagonistic experience of being human, no matter their setting, their physical attributes, their personal characteristics, or the epoch in which they live. Film becomes political when it resides within this universal. The films of Almodovar, despite railing against a particular reactionary form of government in Spain, despite often focusing on, in particular on women or on homosexuals or transsexuals, are political precisely because they investigate the universal antagonisms at the heart of the subjective experience of these particular groups. Almodovar's characters are not magic, they are messy. They are abject in their lacking desire. We who speak are abject. We who think are divided. We who desire are queer. All right, Nina, you're up. Right, so I was thinking about this film, which is also sometimes translated as Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down um, in the in English, um, in relation to two different conceptions of freedom, one of which is perhaps uh, an older idea that freedom or liberty is the freedom from being dominated or consumed by your desires and your predilections and your weaknesses. Um, so in a way, let's say an image of desire as something to be controlled, whether we're talking about appetite, sexual appetites, appetite for food. And obviously, if we think about the seven deadly sins, some of these are concerned with appetitious forms of behavior. Um, and then a second idea of freedom, which is the freedom, let's say, to explore desire or to expand desire or to um, indulge desire, I suppose. And I think we've been talking a lot over the weeks about the sexual revolution and um, at what stage we are at in it, if we think that it perhaps began around the 1960s and a lot of theory, obviously, like Deleuze and Guattari and so on, are interested in unleashing the flows of desire and thinking about a kind of libidinal um, conception of politics. And in this sense, Almodovar's films, I think, are about both of these ideas of uh, freedom and desire in relation to desire. So on the one hand, the freedom being the, almost like the emancipation um, from desire on the basis of its understanding and control so that one doesn't indulge in uh, every single thing that one wants to do. And this is actually uh, a mark of how virtuous you are. And, and uh, it's a question of constraint. Um, and I think that we can read Almodovar's film as a, a kind of metaphor for a, a a long-standing political question or a question that is central to political philosophy, namely uh, the question of voluntary servitude. Um, and this is a kind of permanent question. It's a very relevant question today when we're thinking about the conformity of people to particular rules and regulations. So, for example, how people respond to uh, the mass global lockdown, which obviously played out differently in different countries. Um, but what we can see is, as a kind of, you know, unprecedented, um, attempt to quarantine or constrain people for vast swathes of time, largely in their homes, um, on, uh, pain of penalties and, and so on, um, which is something 
unprecedented in our lifetimes, we, we have to say, um, that raises very immediate questions about how people behave, uh, how they respond to uh, particular messages sent by the government, transmitted often in very fear-inducing ways. And the government have admitted in the UK, um, for example, that they, they used fear tactics to scare the population. They freely suggested that they engaged in a politics of fear so that people would behave in a particular way that they wanted them to. Um, so we we know very well that um, fear and manipulation are political weapons that are used at times by governments. But this is a slightly, um, I want to pose like a slightly different question, which is to do with the, the film. So we have a character, the female, the female lead, who is a formerly um, porn actress, who is now acting in a kind of uh, horror or sort of campy horror film. And the director is kind of in love with her or at least kind of obsessed with her um, and then we have the uh, the male lead who's kind of uh, released from uh, um, a mental uh, hospital and uh, it, you know the Banderas character who is um, very frightening in some ways uh, who is obsessed also with this, this porn actress um, who um, he has met once before uh, on a previous escape attempt uh, from a successful attempt uh, escape from the mental hospital. And so there are several different kinds of bondage or constraint in the film. So one of which would be the, I guess, the most obvious one, the physical kidnapping of the actress, and then the, the use of handcuffs and ropes and so on. And with all of the play around kinkiness and, you know, so on that Almodovar is sort of interested in and hinting at um, in that... We also have the form of bondage that she suffers from and her character is um, a junkie, described as a junkie earlier on the film and she exhibits um, uh, tendencies towards uh, relation particularly to heroin but also to other substances um, which we could also see in terms of a kind of constraint like the, the possibility of addiction which is also a form of bondage. Um, so we have the kidnapping, we have the, the, the drug addiction, we have then the question of love and the question of the relationship as a possible form of voluntary servitude, um, you know, and, and obviously this film you could you can absolutely criticise from a feminist <laughs> point of view because it's, uh, you know, extremely violent. You have a kind of crazy obsessive guy who, who uses violence and coercion and threats in order to um, not only physically imprison but and physically hurt um, a woman um but also um, in a moment of sympathy after he gets beaten up whilst trying to buy heroin for her, for her um, a, a kind of beauty in the beast reversal in which she kind of feels sympathy for him and then falls in love with him at this point. And ultimately it's presented as a kind of love story in which even the, the, the main female character's sister approves of the relationship um, somehow, even though it, it, at its uh, commencement it was a violent uh, cap capture. Um, but I think then more broadly we have the kind of question then of 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 dependency and the idea of, of relationships being you often hear I suppose this idea of codependency or trauma bonding or the idea of um, the possibility of romantic relationships in a sense also being a potentially a form of constraint and there are obviously more or less forms of abusive relationships the ones in which uh, one party seeks to prevent the other person from let's say 
seeing their friends or their family or, you know, in a way, kidnapping them from the world and, and trying to create a world in which perhaps the other person is somehow too uniquely, although ultimately it would be impossible to do this, but to fulfill the every the other person's every need. And this often um, involves vast quantities of jealousy, possessiveness, stalking, and, and so on. And I think we probably all know of those kind of relationships, whether in our own past or in people that we we know. It's not an uncommon pattern of behaviour to a greater or lesser um, degree. Um, so we have, I guess, various forms of external and internal and and sort of, let's say, material and metaphorical kinds of bondage that are at play here, that are part of this bigger political question about what it means to be free. In fact, does freedom mean complete um, cutting off of all dependency, which would include all of our social bonds? And this is sometimes the fantasy of the homo economicus or the, the apparently free autonomous individual who is somehow rationally calculating his or her every move um, and doesn't seem to be burdened by any form of kind of uh, attachment, whether it be familial or questions of loyalty or friendship or, you know, to a place or time or anything like that. There's a kind of existing fantasy in that way. Um does freedom actually mean rather uh, control of one's desires? And I think the one of the questions posed in the film is whether love is a substitute for uh, substance, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Does does the romantic... It's left open and I think actually slightly underexplored. I think that the last part of the film is somewhat rushed, actually, and I thought there could have been slightly more exploration of the relationship between... Uh, the, the woman's desire for heroin and her about turn on the man in relation to this question of love and romance and whether what the relationship between substance and uh, romance uh, might be in that sense. Um, can you therefore replace uh, the domination of one form of bondage with another, let's say? Um, so is there good bondage and bad bondage? Uh, I guess, and I suppose again, this is this is not only a political question, a personal question, a question of the external forms of constraint, and uh, but also kind of uh, how we feel about our relation to pretty much everything, whether it be the world, substances in the world, people in the world, <laughs> the world as such. Um, you know, and, and of course, ultimately, we're not unconstrained. We we do have ties, we have attachments. Even the most isolated person in a way is not exempt from uh, these kinds of questions. So I think the, you know, one of the things that, that is raised for me by this film at least is um yeah, just to just to reiterate, I guess, the the relationship between positive forms of bondage, freely chosen bondage, if you like, if that makes any sense, the constraints that we choose and the constraints that we don't. Interesting. All right, I'm up. In this film, everyone does whatever they want, and everyone gets away with it. Antonio Banderas steals things and kidnaps a woman, and nobody really seems to mind very much. The woman is a drug addict, and the Banderas character steals drugs for her. Even when he is caught and beat up by some of the drug pushers, the beating only makes the woman he kidnapped more sympathetic to him. By the end of the film, the kidnapped woman is in love with him, and even her sister supports their relationship. The film is almost a parody of the way anarchists wish the world worked. The cops never have to be called because everyone's desires are ultimately reconcilable with everyone else's, no matter how violent those desires might be. 
The woman is a heroin addict, and her heroin addiction is just a means by which Banderas can prove his devotion to her. The Banderas character is just misunderstood, and no one who gives him a chance dislikes him. It's 1989, and he's Antonio Banderas. If you won't give him a chance, he'll make you give him a chance, and by the end, you'll thank him for it. It's a remarkably anti-political film, I think. (laughs) If the world really worked this way, we wouldn't have any need of states. In truth, violent kidnappers don't look or act like Antonio Banderas. In truth, heroin addiction often ends in death by despair. In truth, we often have conflicting values that make it hard to live alongside one another, let alone be handcuffed to one another for hours at a time. There's a difference between what we desire and what's good for us. Temperance is a cardinal virtue because when there's a conflict, temperance enables us to put the good ahead of the desires we feel in the moment. That's why Plato emphasizes it in the Republic, and why it is also emphasized by Cicero, Augustine, and Aquinas. We have duties to our friends and family, to our fellow citizens, and we can't just fuck around. In recent decades, temperance has been mocked as a quality possessed only by squares who are no fun. But when you deal with people who lack temperance, you deal with people who always put their own desires first, who will cast you aside as soon as your needs conflict with their feelings. Intemperate people may give you an exciting night out, but as soon as the going gets tough, they get going. As politics has grown increasingly intemperate, voters prioritize catharsis over achieving anything of substantive value. The other day I saw a prominent left-wing writer boast that an article he wrote would anger conservatives. He urged his readers to send it to their conservative relatives for the purpose of upsetting them. He did not aim to persuade anybody to unite people behind any common political purpose. He encouraged his readers to take pleasure in spreading division and making right-wingers feel negative emotions. How is his work better than that of the right-wing trolls he criticizes who seek the catharsis of liberal tears? Real politics requires us to work with people we dislike. When we dislike people, it's cathartic to tell them how much we think they suck. But telling people they suck gets in the way of working with them. It can go the other way. Sometimes when we have romantic feelings for someone, confessing those feelings can get in the way too. Intense feelings are inherently risky, and when we're working toward a political objective of substantive value, we've got to be careful. Political victories are the difference between people going home and going hungry. Lives are on the line, and fundamental rights are at stake. These things matter more than getting laid. But instead, people focus on finding themselves, on discovering an identity defined in large part by who they happen to want to have sex with. We are defining ourselves not by whether we perform our duties to others, but by what kinds of things we take pleasure in, by sexual orientations, and by fandoms. It's no wonder people feel so nihilistic. They feel solidarity not with those who share their struggle, but with those who happen to want to fuck the same people. It's morally meaningless, and politically, it goes nowhere. So true. It's so this this phenomenon of um, politicizing sexual quote unquote identity, even this idea of sexual identity. How is sexuality? Obviously, sexuality is a is part of the human subjective experience. But does somebody? Do I have anything particularly in common with another Sith? What do you call it? Cis head woman? No, do Sith. I? No. Sith. <laughs> Sith. Is that is that revenge no, of no. the Sith? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but do you know what I mean? It's like, does, does one gay man have, obviously historically when we lived in different contingent political formations where there was more homophobia objectively in the past, but today does a gay builder have the same 
you know, political needs as a gay father of two business owner, you know, like what? The the only really, I don't know, majorly significant form of historical solidarity that comes to mind in relation to the history of the lesbian and gay movement would be the lesbians who looked after the, the men who were dying of AIDS in major cities in the 80s. And this was an act of solidarity on the basis of a shared homosexual identity, even though gay men and gay women don't otherwise necessarily have many of any of the shared same interests um, beyond this. And and so, you know, there was a kind of form of political solidarity that, that became a form of personal action. And often those women were asked to um, assist the men in dying, in fact, because they, the doctors wouldn't do it. And they were often the only people who looked after the men. Um at that time but yeah, that's absolutely because you know again like the set of no set you know the Marxist idea and obviously it's I think it is sort of wrong to morally ask those who are excluded to be the revolutionary subject to take it upon themselves to redeem everybody but there is a thing of when one is an outsider in a given um you know uh in a given political framework or whatever and yes one shares an outsideness with another with another group but it is interesting, though, this idea of what is outsideness in, in terms of sexual identity today, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to think that there is any subversive revolutionary potential left. I think these, these avenues are completely exhausted. Um, there's nothing, uh, obviously, revolutionary at all about being polyamorous, gay, whatever. I mean, there, there simply isn't. Um, they affect, it affects nothing. Uh, this is why the lumpen proletariat is not typically taken by Marxists to be the revolutionary class. The lumpen proletariat is the outsiders, and the outsiders don't have anything in common beyond being outside, and therefore they experience a level of disorganization and brokenness that makes it difficult for them to come together or be organized on any political line. They are too caught up in just trying to survive as as true outsiders. Their day-to-day -day life is one of just trying to make it through the day. There is no excess energy for the political. This is why I really like um, the Lacanian idea of Santom um, in terms of what well, he uses it with a psych uh, psychotic kind of subjective bucket. But the idea of Santom is the same, uh, is a homophone of symptom in French, but it means also saint saintly man, that the symptom bears a truth you know, not knowingly, but like, for instance, one's addiction bears the truth about the antagonisms one isn't facing, whatever. And so, yes, the antagonism or the symptom of homelessness or the symptom of the lumpen or the symptom of the outsider. But yes, to ask, to say that this, this group must, because I sort of find this with the politicization of sexual identity, that it's like, well, this given quote unquote identity group is the new revolutionary subject. And it's like, it's not upon anybody's shoulders to like teach any of us some political lesson other than, yes, there, there will be a contingent scapegoat often, I mean, nearly always, and there will be some group or there'll be some societal symptoms. But yeah, that this sort of like this angelic group who has some certain experience can berate us or inform us like an angel transcended, descended to earth of what we must do to transform things. It's very strange. I think when we think about classes as revolutionary subjects, we're talking about people who have a shared set of social roles, which they perform under a common set of material conditions, right? So there's a lot of concrete 
situation there. When we talk about a sexual orientation as a revolutionary subject, we're uniting people not by what they do or by their duties to other people or by their, their function, but just by what they want. Yeah. I mean, I think all politics of desire, not only exhausted, they're also extremely dangerous, potentially. I mean, clearly they are. And the fact is, various people, everyone's desire, I mean, is frankly, on some level, disgusting and should be private and has nothing to do with when we come together to talk about how we best live together in what politics and the the act of negotiation and the art of de-escalation and um, compromise and all of those things that you actually need in order to live with anyone else, including yourself. <laughs> um, so, so actually having a politics in which desire is first and foremost at the, or at the forefront of what politics is supposed to be was, I can see why the 60s thinkers maybe thought it was a good idea, but at the same time, I don't think they really thought it through. And, and to actually live through the consequences of a desire-based politics is to see, um, in a way, uh, real horrors to, to, you know, at the, like, it, you know, these are things that should not enter the political realm. I think there's this, because when you actually read Freud, I think there's a lot of these sort of te secondary tertiary readers who just think everything's about sex and it's like nothing could be further from the truth. Mm. You know, it's like you need, I do think that you need to read Marx with Freud. I think that could really help us in terms of how our libidinal investment and our unconscious investment in the market system works. And that could really, really help you know, show things, but this, this whole thing of like, oh, it's all about sex. Cause it basically, it's just the stripping everything out of it and saying, oh, every, it's all about sex. And like, obviously early Freud is completely different from late Freud, but it's sort of just like, right. Uh, civilization is discontents and the problem is repression, sexual repression. And it's like, repression isn't just sexual. Like the whole the whole sort of like schema and set of ideas of Freud are highly complicated. They all, as Lacan point out, points out and others, like revolve around lack. Sexuality is not like an, uh, like an actual thing. It's, a, it's a, like a dealing with a no thing. And it is, as you say, Nina, completely abject and fucking ridiculous, you know. <laughs> and it's not, it's not some, the sort of promise that, that again, this is why this is where the, the capitalist the capitalist reading is always here's a problem, here's a solution. This solution will give us a transcendent, you know, redeeming of the problem, and it'll all be great. No, and Freud points this out. That never works. Like that never works. So, oh, the problem is we're sexually repressed. All we have to do is unleash sexuality, and then we'll live in a new utopia. Like, that is so anti-Freudian, it's fucking hilarious. Mm. Um, but also, this is why I have a lot of sympathy with Almodovar, because Almodovar is coming out of, you know, a gay, a gay man who grew up under Franco and all of the issues that were, you know, that, that emerged there. And this is not to say that Franco, in fact, like, Franco was awful, obviously, but, you know, it's a very complicated history. But he deals with this in a way that is not so... Um, you know, it, it's almost like these these earlier the the earlier people who are kind of investigating this versus what we have now. You know, mm. it's not about solutions. It's all just fucking yeah. ridiculous. You know, it's it's abject. It's funny. It's weird. It's stupid. It's not reality. It's surreal. It's out there. It's not the same as right. This is this like it's almost like what would happen now is some some wokey film would be like doing this, but not in this artistic way. It would be like 
how awful these people are. They've overcome their oppression. All we have to do is learn from these magical people. I mean, these people, the people, Ricky, we don't have to learn anything for fucking Ricky. He's crazy. He's like a no. No, no, I think, I think, you know, one of the conclusions of the film in a way or the implications is that like actually love and desire is not politically correct. You know, I mean, obviously it, it, the film is very deliberately anti-feminist in that way. You know, it, it you, <laughs> it's saying that in a way it doesn't make sense. You know, for for a man to kidnap a woman and to be violent towards her and and so on, and this and this culminate in some romantic love story is obviously the opposite of what we would generally agree. I mean, it's interesting that I tried to make the film also like a political political metaphor, and Benjamin wanted to say that it was anti-political, and you know, and I think I think both are true somehow. But I really like Benjamin's point about the. Um, you know, this was almost like the anarchist state, you know, where, where basically everybody kind of follows their own desire and everyone does what they want. Um, and the actual, you know, the kind of, and of course it has a happy ending, inverted commas. Um, but obviously a situation in which everyone does what they want. And actually worse than that, because I think the politics of desire is, a competition at the level of desire itself, right? So it's saying my desire is more important than your desire. You know, and we see this play out all over the place now. It's like, it's almost like people want to give their desire rights. You know, it's like not them as person who has a desire rights, but their desire itself needs rights or something like this. Well, to come back to the distinction Nina made about freedom being associated either with freedom from desire or freedom to indulge desire, I think along similar lines, there's a kind of virtue signaling that occurs in the first case and a kind which occurs in the second case. So in the first case, the way you signal your virtue is by signaling how in control of your desires you are, how you how little you are influenced by your desires. And there's a pridefulness of the stoic kind where you go, I am the stoic sage. I cannot be moved by circumstance. No matter what, I'll never, ever, ever give in to the appetite at all. Look at me. I'm so great. Right. But on the other side, there's this idea that, look at me, I have entirely benign desires. My desires, I can indulge them completely and they cause no harm to anyone because my desires are so lovely and pure and beautiful, right? And in this film, everybody gets to have that. Everybody gets to have desires which cause no harm to anybody that all happen to harmoniously all fit together. And this is, I think, really when they say, you know, what if everyone were queer? What if everyone had this set of virtuous desires that all fit together neatly and wonderfully and didn't need, didn't require any kind of political management at all? What if everybody could completely indulge desires that were completely harmless? Uh, and it's, that's the fantasy, I think, that increasingly predominates liberal politics. Mm. There's a few things that uh, made me think of. First of all, I absolutely think that this is the syllogism right here, that it's both apolitical and political at the same time. And, and like only a film and certain other forms of art can, can actually manage this. Number two, I think that absolutely, like in a way, it's funny, Almodovar, obviously it's not autobiographical, but his, the, the director character is this absolutely gross, like overweight, old, lecherous, dick and but you know he's sort of like this he's sort of a send-up but it's it's a very kind of like child childlike comedic world you know it's like a seven-year-old's world it's it's completely tame you know it's like oh let's have this oh let's put the duplo blocks together and da, da, da. like it's it's like objectively ridiculous and childlike um the other thing by the way about this idea of we're all queer and this idea of like certain identity categories that have collective political whatever you know 
of course, they're, they're, again, humans operate on two different levels with so the material level and then the unconscious level or the, the split subjectivity. So yes, okay, we might say that, for instance, at given situations, women experience this, but, but on a transcendent quote unquote level, you know, it's much more complicated and sex would fit on not the material, but some other kind of dimension. Um, but yeah, the idea, and Gigi has made this point a lot, that the plus of the LGBTQ is correct, not LGBT, blah, 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 or the ever extending, because as you, as you know, what you'll see is there'll be like, okay, there's the A for asexual, and then there's gray asexuality, then there's this A, then there's demi asexuality, then there's pan asexuality, and all these different things, which the truth of it is, is that everybody's subject, everybody's desire is different, like everybody's, like anybody, you, like, the, okay, they're only the same insofar as we are all human beings and we all are born and we all enter into language and certain things happen in similar ways in our first, you know, zero to five years. So therefore desires can take certain, you know, I, I so there's like a list of fetishes and like that, you know, they all sort of like operate around similar things because we're all dealing as we enter into language with similar things. Obviously, we can go into like what a sexual fantasy actually is, what it means. That's a whole different thing. And it's actually quite interesting. But they all have similar dynamics, but they're all different. They are all unique. So anytime you try to capture them, you can't. They keep going on and on and on. So therefore, all that we all of us share is our crazy abjectness. And the other thing about that film being very childlike is it it follows the logic of sexual fantasy itself. Sexual fantasy takes the logic of like a three-year-old because this is sort of the age at which it forms. So it is sort of like absolutely hilariously childlike, you know? It's a, child, it's a child's logic with lots of ellipses and symbolism and absurdities. Well, thinking, thinking a little bit more about pride, uh, and, and pride, of course, is a major theme of this movement. Uh, you know, the, the pride of, on the one hand, having the correct desires, on the other hand, having completely overcome desire. I think both are, are equally forms of pride, equally deeply arrogant perspectives. I think if, if anybody's really honest with themselves about what they desire, and they really, really look at themselves and ask themselves, what do they want? What would they do if they really just did what they wanted? You would have to admit that some of the things that you want are things you absolutely must not do, right? So right now, my father's got prostate cancer, and he's bedridden. He is lying in a bed. There's tumors in his brain. He can't form complete sentences, right? And my mother is caring for him in the house, right? And, and what do I really want to do? I would like to go away. I would like to go somewhere far away, rent a cabin, get an Airbnb for a thousand bucks a month. I don't care and not talk to her and not see him and not be there. That's what I want. Now, I shouldn't do that, and I'm not going to do that, but that's what I want, right? We shouldn't do what we want to do. What we want to do is often really wrong, really wrong, not just a little bit. I know we live in this chaotic universe where things don't make sense and things are complicated. We both love and hate you know, and this ambivalence is something that often people go to psychoanalysis because they can't deal. Or like they've repressed one desire, but it's returned as like a stomach ulcer or as toxic anxiety or something. But we have multiple, often contradictory desires. And as you say, often desires that are abject and horrible and immoral. And often, you know, it takes admitting it 
But as you say, you know, you're not going to do it. And, you know, we, we have to have rules and things like that so that we don't. You know, it's a very common thing for some for people to have at the part of them parasite, you know, desire to kill their parents. Of course, we can't do that, you know, because we live in a material reality with other people. And also at the same time, we love people as much as we, you know, don't at the same time. Yeah, we have duties to people. And and we have to we have to do those duties, especially when we don't want to do them. The whole point of the concept of duty is to be able to somehow motivate yourself to do things when you really, really don't want to do them, when you'd rather be doing anything else but those things. And and somehow you know, you've got to you've got to be able to find a way through. You've got to be able to create a situation that allows you to do those duties as well as you can do them consistent with the conditions that you're in. Absolutely. I mean, the cans- yeah. Sorry, go for it, No, no, sorry. I just wanted to do add something about this kind of you know this this question of duty. It's it's all you know sometimes not only a duty to do things for others or to do particular things. But also, like, not to do particular things as well. I mean, you know, as in, there's a kind of whether it's easier to to do the things you should do or to not do something. If you saw what I mean, and I, I think the not doing something is is in a way the sort of the question of the addict. Um, you know, the addict is always the person who is struggling not to do like the one thing that they delusionally think will somehow fill their lack. You know, and so it's a kind of question of. Um, constraining oneself like to a different kind of nothing or trying to replace the the lack that you feel <laughs> and that you 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 know again you think there is a solution to your problem um whatever your problem is um but it's literally the one thing you shouldn't do because it's precisely the thing that will destroy everything else um and you also know that as well and 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 so i think this kind of you know the fantasy of the the one substance or the one type of thing that will somehow fulfill all of your needs, um, even though repeated uh, evidence would demonstrate that that is precisely the opposite of the case. And in fact, is it's, uh, you know, it destroys everything else. And, and then I suppose you have to admit that in a way that the desire for destruction is also part of your desire, you know, that the desire to actually destroy everything that you hold dear, whether it be your personal relationships, your you know, I don't know, your standing, your your jobs, whatever, is also part of your desire. And that's even stranger to try to understand, like the, the nihilism or the desire for a kind of destruction or an end to it all, but somehow an end that you can also enjoy. <laughs> no, exactly. And this, this ambivalence, you know, this, you know, the return of the repressed issue, you know, all we have to do is overcome repression. It's like part of recognising what's repressed is that the dualism of it. And we repress, often we get, um, what do you call it, uh, reaction formations of this like stuck stuck issue, but of this ambivalent desire, we get caught between two and we're not re- recognizing either. And so if we unrepress one desire, there's still another desire that's opposite, that's also repressed. And, you know, Schopenhauer in World's Will and Representation says that we're stuck between pain and boredom as, as human beings. And Freud says, you know, depression and melancholia. If you get the thing that, you know, on some unconscious level you believe will fulfill your lack, you'll be melancholic. And it's almost worse because you have recognized the impotence of that thing. So often people who are like toxic accumulators, like toxic capitalists, they have to keep accruing zeros and zeros and zeros precisely because it fails to fulfill them. You often get very melancholic, you know, wealthy people, for instance. And then depression is on the other side where, 
you know, if you don't have what you desire at all, it's highly depressing. You know, so we're stuck between these two things. And Lacan says, don't give way in terms of your desire, partly because as in desire is dualistic. So if you get one thing, then you're oppressing another thing that you might also want that's, that's antagonistic. But you have to, at some level, realize that you need to go after what you want. Like you have to recognize and be honest, as, as Benjamin was saying, like if you say, oh, I, I'm just totally abstinent, that's also a problem. Mm. But at the same, recognizing that it's messy and shit and antagonistic and often abject. But at the same time, recognize that actually fulfilling whatever you have is going to just confront you with the impotence of anything to overcome, like, and is often more terrible than painful. So everything is ambivalent in this world and there's no easy solution and capitalism sets up facile solutions. And the way that we deal with sexuality right now is totally facile, is totally one-sided and also really ist against whatever the fetishized group is, you know, that they can't handle antagonism or that they are undivided beings. And as undivided beings who aren't antagonistic, well, they're not human. So who's the really offensive one here? <laughs> well, and I think another one of the things I like about Plato and Aristotle and don't like about the Stoics is the acknowledgement that you need to be in the right kind of setting to appropriately take on and perform a role. That if you're in a setting that is too stressful, too miserable, uh, that doesn't meet your basic needs, that of course you're going to fall prey to having to meet those. And and that's why the lumpen proletariat doesn't have revolutionary potential. The lumpen proletariat is in a situation where it doesn't have the psychological resources to be political uh, and, and is therefore unable to organize. So for instance, and to return to my own case, right? I could not stay in the house with my mother all the time. If I did that, I would fight with her too much and have too much difficulty there. So I had to go to a different house for part of the day, right? So that I can come back to the house and be around her as much as I can stand, right? That's how I balance it. So I can, I can do as much of it as I can, but take care of myself well enough that it's sustainable and that I don't lose it. And the Stoic would say, well, you know, you should just be able to stay in the house and just do it and, and just not be at all phased by any of it. And I think that that's a similarly prideful mistake to the mistake of saying, I can just do what I want and run off to a cottage in the woods. Yeah, I think it's a totally religious fallacy. You know, it's asceticism, it's bollocks, and it's, it's highly anti-human. And it's very depressing, actually, because you know, what you're really missing in favor of just sort of elevating to the superego is, is depressing. And as you say, like, I think all, like Freud, you know, it says that the cure is getting to be able to tolerate ordinary unhappiness and ordinary unhappiness is recognizing the material needs. And often, you know, we want to just, it's amazing what human beings can put up with if they believe it's going to, the thing that they attain by putting up with it is going to cl close the gap flag. So for instance, boarding school, to talk about it again, lots of people have, are realizing, lots of the parents who send their kids off, which is terribly depressing, and realizing that it's not this magical cure-all and actually it hasn't really done anything and cost them lots of money and got lots of people you know, into debt. And so now it's realizing like, what the fuck was I doing? I managed because I thought that this was going to solve every problem and make you know my children's lives magically better they the children go through abuse and separation and, and horrible things in the name of success and instead of realizing well nothing can close the gap of lack so all we have is here and now then you can actually make more reasonable decisions like we should have a fairer society <laughs> and we should tax people more and 
et cetera, et cetera. And we should actually have, you know, return to some kind of like actual political. We should not forgo the political in exchange for the identity political, which isn't politics, especially when it's about desire. Like what? Yeah, I mean, I think I think politics then becomes something that is fundamentally incomplete, right? Like it, it can't ever be solved, and this is the problem, like with solutions of any kind, right? Like you know, to to sort of have a psychoanalytic conception of politics is to say that there will always be disagreement and that we will always have different needs and different desires, and all we can basically do is to try to um, navigate those in a way that will probably make everyone slightly unhappy. But at least it won't make, uh, you know, some people extremely unhappy, or <laughs> you know, and 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 you know that's about it, I suppose. Um, and I think you know, especially when you're younger, it's very very tempting to think that there is a, you know, a best system or a, you know best possible way of doing things, and to to kind of throw all your weight behind that. And you know, I think I think a lot of that idea today comes from this idea that if we just um, stop history, you know, this is a kind of perennial political fantasy, that the past was this horrible, you know, murderous, horrific place filled with terrible people doing terrible things, but we can start again and we'll be nice and good people and everyone in the past was, was rotten, but we're not like them, you know, and this is a perennial fantasy too, that we, and that we, therefore, we always forget precisely the ambivalences of history, the ambivalences that we share, all of our inheritances, not only the ones that should or should not make us feel guilty, and whether guilt is a useful political affect or not, I strongly doubt. Um, you know, but but rather to understand that we are them, like we are everybody in history too, um, with all of the the same questions, all of the same problems, and so on. And um, just because technology slightly changes, the human doesn't really, you know, all of the same virtues, vices, emotions, negative feeling, envy, jealousy, you know, all those things, they, they still exist, we still have them, you know, and they don't, they don't just disappear. Exactly. And I think politics, you know, actually, guilt and discipline shouldn't be something, you know, is not the political. And I don't think you can discipline desires. I think that you can you know, recognize desires and find best ways that they can, the stakes can be low or they can be played out in like constructive ways. Um, but also I think that this, the, the way that we we look at the past as this abject thing relative to the, to, the, to the present operates in a similar way as the empire was used ideologically for people back home in the UK who, you know, during the horrendous industrial revolution and the exploitation of working people, places like Manchester and Liverpool and stuff, at least these people, you know, the ideology part of it was, you know, they, they're at least one rung above the people in these other far-flung places. And I think that in order to preventing us from recognising how divisive, alienating, actually quite horrific today is, we look at the past and say, well, it was so awful, but it's like, was it really that awful? Really? You know, like we have, through commodity fetishism, disguised how awful things are today. Yeah. And, you know, I think that one of the things that's hard for people to admit is, especially the, the crowd that's really into UBI, if if we were to all stop working and just uh, collect checks, we can only do that because there are other people in the world who continue to work. It's a rich country's only thing. It's not an everybody thing. We don't have the global output to send everybody a check for even $12,000, let alone thirty. I um, I once was in a debate with the pro-UBI people on this, and I, I took the side of a GBI, which is a global basic income, if only to 
to take the position, right, in this discussion. And there are people campaigning for global basic income, but it would basically be one or two dollars a day, which for everybody. But this would actually drag like, you know, a billion people out of abject poverty if you gave them one or two dollars a day, right? But obviously it would do nothing for the vast majority of people in the in the West. It would, you know... So, but it's but it's very very interesting to reconceive. Of course, you'd have to have a global one world government, and hopefully not the one we're about to have or already have secretly. Um, but <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, but rather, you know, it's it's interesting to imagine a distribution mechanism that would be capable of giving one dollar a day to every single person on the globe, um, or whether we would still be in a money economy at that point. But yeah, I mean, it's it's totally correct that UBI can only you know, be a national or federal project in a certain way. Like, there's no way around that. And it would have to be a rich country thing. What I don't understand is, like, what's the problem with tax redistribution? Like, because what UBI is going to be is some people own the means of production, let's say, if it's all automated. And so some people are, you know, lordly aristocracy and everyone else just has money to spend at their company store. Like, seems a bit shit to me. The issue right now is capital mobility. I think more than anything else, the ability of money to move around and therefore pit territorial states against each other in a competition to attract capital is the principal structural problem that we have now in the global economy. Yeah, I know. And again, talking about, I think, Nina, you raised this, like, it is quite funny, these facile solutions, like, as if anarchy is like sexually overcoming sexual repression. By the way, also, Repression is a good thing, like as we know with this film, and a lot of people, BDSM, people are, many people are aroused by restriction, like restriction not having generates desire. So you would have no desire at all if you got rid of repression. Desire only functions insofar as there is a super ego, an ego, and an id. So like it's complete, a complete fucking logical fallacy all the way down. And it is so not Freudian. And I find it really fucking funny how a lot of people who talk about this sort of mode, or even if it's not a conscious thing, it operates on an ideological level, will refer to themselves as like Marxists or into psychoanalysis. And you're like, no. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, repression, repression is not globally bad. You know, you have bad kinds of repression when a desire isn't recognized. But the, the repression is more about a desire not being consciously recognized rather than a desire being um, like something being repressed and not had. And the problem with repression is when it comes with the pride of the Stoics, which denies that these desires are there or denies that they can overpower the will of the individual. Yeah. I mean, this is why I think like the oracle at Delphi says, know thyself, right? Because know thyself also means know your weakness. And this is very important if you have enemies, right? <laughs> because um, if you can identify in yourself the tendencies that you have, like the, the you know, your desires, your, um, I don't know, I don't know what the word is. Like everybody has one or more than one thing that, yeah, that they, they want that isn't good for them. Or, you know, like a, a a set of, you know, some people will be tempted by certain things, let's say, and they will be like, I don't know, a ladies man, this phrase or whatever. And, and I suppose having awareness of your own weakness, your own tendency, again, puts us back in this situation of strategic repression, being able to kind of deal with your own desire, not in a fully repressed stoic or ascetic kind of I deny myself everything sort of mode which 
then causes more problems. But rather in the sense of, I know myself, like I know I'm the kind of person who is tempted by this thing. And in that sense, then yeah, precisely, I think you can try to control your environment. You know, like some drinkers or former drinkers, for example, will never go in pubs again. Like some people can, but some people can't. That you simply just remove yourself from particular situations in which that temptation is there, and and so it's you have all these meta structures or these these you know these kind of uh, constraints before you even get anywhere close to the thing, and. Um, I think there is hopefully a way of doing that which isn't completely miserable so that like in the recognition of one's own weakness there is actually a kind of pleasure paradoxically it's like to admit to oneself that you are weak in this way is also a form of control and it, it means that other people um, hopefully can't use that against you if they want to you know it you know if, if people want to I think I was thinking about Roald Dahl's adult short stories the other day. I don't know if you've read any of these, but they're they're very brutal. They're very psychologically interesting. They're very extreme. Um, but a lot of them involve, I guess, forms of mani- psychological manipulation between parties. Um, and a lot of it depends upon, I, I think, the the exposing of weaknesses, like playing people's weaknesses off against each other. Um, and this is what people do all the time, I suppose. You know, you can do this if you want. Um, but if you if you know who you are, then it's less likely that someone can trip you up in this way. Yeah, as someone who loves to control things, it's really fun to control your environment in such a way that you can control yourself and your day and what you do. And I think uh, the point Nina's kind of making about, about pride, pride is always a form of vainglory. Pride is always imagining either that you imagining that you don't have certain weaknesses or certain mm. desires. So in the stoic mode it's denying that you have or can be controlled by desire at all. And in the contemporary libidinal mode it's denying that you have any negative desires, any desires which can cause harm to others. Right? So in both cases it's I don't have any uh capacity to cause harm to others or to do evil or or badness through acting on the basis of desire, either because I'm immune to desire or because I only have the good kinds of desires or the acceptable kinds of desires, right? In both cases, the person has a lack of self-knowledge. They're denying or repressing or concealing from themselves certain fundamental facts about them that they need to know to even have virtue to begin with. And this is why Montesquieu makes the argument that self-knowledge is a prerequisite for virtue. And therefore, he argues that because self-knowledge is so rare and so uncommon, virtue also is rare and uncommon. And this leads to the creation of states which can withstand the, the fact that increasingly there is no possibility of widespread virtue. And a lot of what I think we have been doing over the last couple hundred years, uh, and this is a little bit of a provocative thought, and it may be rubbish, but I think we've kind of been falling down the cycle of regimes. You know, we we have people who are interested in the good, and then we have people who are interested in honor and reputation, but not the good as such. And now we have people who are interested just in pleasure, in desire, in getting what they want. And as this happens, the political theorist who's trying to maintain some kind of order, some kind of stability, and who has that as their goal, has to come up with some kind of social order which is compatible with the type of person that you have in each of these settings. And so for Montesquieu, the, the idea was, well, we, we can't control things through virtue, but maybe we can have a system based on honor, uh, a monarchy 
based on honor with nobles who are interested in their reputation and standing and will therefore be uh, able to be incentivized to act in a way which is publicly good, if only so that they can receive those honors which they individually covet, right? And, and give that impression of having virtues which they don't in fact have. And now we are increasingly trying to have a political theory that's based around people who just are libidinal. Yeah. And so that's when you go to, you know, Deleuze and Guattari and, and this kind of libidinal politics trying to reconceive a, a kind of, of political order which is compatible with a type of person who is entirely libidinal. And I think the, the unfortunate uh, you know, reality there is that Plato is kind of right that once you get down this cycle and you start to have a society which celebrates either just mere honor or just mere pleasure seeking, it's very difficult to have stability in the long run. You can do various things to kick things along, but you're very much in a in a buying time mode, as Wolfgang Streak's book is 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 entitled, uh, where you're constantly trying to kick the can and find just enough to keep an order moving along, but because you don't have any kind of public concern for any kind of, of collective good or, or public welfare, uh, because that's not something that is enough to motivate anybody anymore. And now even honor and reputation is not enough because people have become really entirely shameless and, and just entirely uh, fixated on getting whatever it is they happen to want in the moment. Now you have to somehow have a society which makes that kind of libidinal attitude compatible with order and stability. You have to come up with some kind of political theory which enables that. And I think we, we have come up with quite a bit, and we've gotten pretty far with this. I think in many respects it's remarkable how stable things are given how rancid a lot of our public attitudes are at this point, uh, a lot of our attitudes to other people. It's kind of surprising how how stable the whole thing is. But you, you have to wonder, how far can you really get with a system that is based around people who are entirely libidinal, pursue principally catharsis, and where politicians tell them, that's fine, that's good, let me give that to you. It is funny as well how that's also associated with the left, the sort of get what you want is associated with the left. And even, you know, you see these, these contemporary movements on the left that are like, you know, fully automated luxury communism and sort of like have whatever you want, have whatever you want, which is like, again, it can only be like having things is nice and people should not, as you say, be like aesthetic, stoic, whatever. So that's also a complete disaster. But how the lack of recognition of A, the fact that everybody else has contradictory desires or the recognition of the other as such within this sort of perspective, how that recognition of the other isn't seen to be a socialistic, um, you know, left-wing collectivist thing. And often people I know who, who are in more kind of like traditional spheres and having moved into the arts, I was sort of horrified at how individualistic, like careerist, uh, frankly immoral it is with this sort of ideal that it's more of a left-wing thing to be within the arts. And it's like, well, people I know who are in sort of very traditional settings, it's a much more collectivist uh, way of, the, the, the way of seeing as in within the system is you know, about, you know, your brothers and sisters you work with and all this kind of stuff and supporting other people. And it is just odd that the left, quote unquote, has been tied with this just have everything you want and fuck everybody else. 
It's very strange. It's everybody at this point on both the left and the right is is tied into some version of this catharsis pursuit, I think. Um, but we have gone over the hours, so we, we probably have got to wrap up. But we are going to do a B-side. If you follow us on Patreon, join us over there. We're going to do the B-side episode. That's what we're going to record next. Uh, and either way, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.